0: So this session is going to start, the final session. And this session we have um, Dirich Nabel and Hadar Lubin. Hadar Lubin will be speaking first and her um, topic, or the title of her, pr- her presentation is Trauma and Disguise, Anti-Semitism. Thank you so much. Hadar is an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry here at Yale University within the School of Medicine and she's the director of the Post Traumatic Street Center uh, here in New Haven, Connecticut. Sorry.
1: Uh, that's a, <laughs> part- a part- Freudian uh, yeah, master- Stress,
0: two stress two. Center. <laughs> it's a, a center here in uh, New Haven. Her, uh, she received um, an MD from Albert Einstein College of Medicine and she's certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology and is a licensed physician here in Connecticut. She developed... Publications dealing with developed women's trauma program and has written extensively on treatment in post traumatic stress disorders. So it's really an honor that you're here. Thank
2: you. Thank you. Well, I got the core group that are willing to sit the whole day and listen to us talk. And so it's terrific because I think it would be a good dialogue. Uh, I, you've, uh, we all heard tremendous uh, um, perspectives so on how to think about anti Semitism, and uh, I believe we all have been humbled of the enormity of the subject and how you really can even const- start to think about how you can really combat it. What I uh, would like to introduce today, granted, uh, the topic of the conference um, today to take a psychological construct to have an understanding really in, in how anti-Semitism really plays out when it is targeting the individual or even the larger group. And I would like to borrow the trauma construct to offer that as a model to understand really how anti-Semitism affect the person and therefore as we have that particular perspective to maybe start thinking about ways to um, attend to the consequences uh, of anti-Semitism as it plays out within the individual and maybe even collectively, if you will. Uh, maybe even to kind of um, acknowledge that it would be nice if we can eradicate trauma in the world. We know we can't, given all many perspectives that we heard. Uh, however, if you have a, a better understanding of how trauma plays out, you can start thinking of the small ways and in due time maybe larger ways to really affect how it is affecting our milieu, society at large. And so I'm just borrowing a construct and I'd like to go over it with you. Why should we talk about trauma when we think about anti-Semitism? Well, uh, like trauma, uh, anti-Semitism causes physical and or emotional harm. It leads to a sense of helplessness that usually um, uh, causes uh, some kind of muteness uh, to the person who experiences it, so therefore to the group who experiences it. It evokes fear, that's the vehicle for which the, uh, the interaction takes place. It involves a power of differential Uh, that makes it very clear who is in charge and who has the control. Uh, In in the language of trauma, the perpetrator, of course, is uh, the uh, agent of control and the victim or target, if you will, uh, is the helpless one. Its effects, uh, anti-Semitism, reverberates throughout life and I would say throughout history, as we saw and heard today. It overwhelms the person's uh, capacity to respond uh, the response of freeze and shock is very common and that may even explain a, in small ways why there aren't very effective responses to anti-Semitism because by, the, by nature it really uh, freezes the, the potential for response and creates a psychological state of uh, shock. What are the common responses of the victim uh, to the traumatic effect or of the recipient of anti-Semitic event? Uh, and I'll just read through and go over in more details. Uh, avoidance is a very common one. Silence, shame and humiliation. We heard a little bit about differences of how those affect a person. Self-blame and guilt, sense of inadequacy and heightened anxiety. A commonly manifested in constellation of symptoms. Some, I know early uh, presenters spoke about post-traumatic stress disorder. Avoidance, Uh, uh, often is in the form of withdrawal from activities or places associated with the experience. Um, We heard quite commonly growing up in Israel that Holocaust survivors uh, said i will never go back to Germany. Uh, That can be something as clear as that or avoidance that is very subtle However, it has an enormous effect on the persons in terms of the capacity to mobilize both their uh, personal aspirations, careers, and travel because of the effect of anti Semitism. Avoidance of people or social settings associated with the experience, a, a therefore increased sense of isolation or insulation, which supports uh, the uh, notion that the group becomes very insulated and more easily targeted as a result. And it denies quite often the experience of distress, so there will be a minimization of the effect. The silence, uh, not uh, reporting to authority. I uh, do a lot of workshops in confronting anti Semitism with uh, middle school age kids and their parents, and quite often you hear that the events occur, but there will be no report to the authority the local authority and uh, the larger authority and and not communicating uh, the event to friends or family and minimizing the effects of the experience, oh, it was just words, it really didn't bother me. I know that you don't understand, they are ignorant and hide the Jewish identity. Quite often people will say, you know, I will never go with the Star of David in certain places, I will put it under my shirt or you're not even... um, admit that they are Jewish in certain circles because of that. So the loss of pride of the um, association. Shame and humiliation, uh, attributing the experience to oneself rather than to the one who delivers it, namely the perpetrator. Being singled out or put down, the experience of helplessness leads to shame on its own right. There is a sense that I was not in, in charge of what happened, I feel weak as a result of it. Feeling bad about being Jewish. So the er, er, eroding in the sense of pride uh, of the origin, of the ethnic origin. Uh, some anti-Semitic experiences are humiliating. The actual event itself can be humiliating. Being self, the self, self shame and self blame and uh, guilt being self-critical of the way you responded. As I, respo- as I said before, quite often the initial response is of freeze or shock, so it is not going to be well articulated and thought through, and it is being uh, misattributed as a, a failure uh, to respond well. There's an attempt to find control in an out-of-control situation, so it's not possible and it leads to a sense of guilt, or, even more so, I caught for it, there is something that I did, not only that other play blame the victims, in fact, the victim himself or herself will blame themselves, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have shown my yarmulke, I shouldn't have shown, didn't talk about my connection to Israel, or whatever that be. Sense of inadequacy, the actual anti-Semitic experience make you feel inadequate. Um, dehumanization or objectifying experiences linked to a sense of inadequacy. That's the purpose of it. Not only we heard earlier that actually objectifying a person facilitate the, the um, capacity of violence and hatred, it actually also makes the person feel inadequate and uh, deserving of that kind of um, response. As humans, we expect to be in charge of our fate, it's called it self- Agency. So when an anti-semitic event derailed that particular trajectory, there is a sense that you're not able to really take yourself in the direction that you thought that you can actually be in charge of. If I'll work very hard, I'll do something very well. That would be interfered if somebody will target you and put you down and interfere your capacity to do as well as you hoped. The heightened anxiety that I spoke before, a fear on itself leads to anxiety, avoidance heightens the sense of anxiety, in fact, it fuels anxiety. Anticipation of a repeated experience or the anticipatory of the next experience, such as anti-Semitic experience, leads to anxiety, and feeling out of control leads to anxiety, so all ways lead to wrong. Uh, and the person is left in a heightened sense of anxiety, which interferes uh, to assess and respond uh, 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 accurately at the situation or effectively. So, what are the different ways that they uh, target an individual? He can be overt or covert, direct or indirect, isolated based versus in social context, emotional versus physical. the overt one, we've seen a lot of them, in direct remark, "You're a dirty Jew, white Israel off the map of the world," versus doing something more covertly, being excluded because of Jewish faith. And the United Nations makes a lot of decisions that are in being a co act as human rights, but there is an anti-Semitic charge underneath, for instance. It can be done directly, target you as a person, or cartoon, saying this is how a Jew looks like, versus making comments about Jews in general. That's a Jewish or incitements in educational material that is actually quite common today, even in, in an institutionalized way in a art facilities where the kids are being educated to hate Jews. Isolated versus social context, encountering with the perpetrator without a witness, it happens in the privacy of the encounter, versus being targeted in a public place or through the media. We see a lot of it in the media where we all are subjected to it. Emotional versus physical, a humiliating or demeaning remarks about Jews a very directly, can cause emotional strain, false accusation, demonization. All of those can cause an emotional burden to the person who has been targeted. It clearly can be in a physical manifestation, when the person can be attacked or properties, threats of violence, we've seen of course the combination of violence in the, in the Holocaust. So what is the roadmap to empowerment? So what are the ways that presumably as there is an understanding that this construct of trauma is a useful way to understand how it affects the individual? What can be done to really counter those (coughs) kind of uh, effects? I'll just read through it. Talk, tell, report, educate others, advocate and get support. Breaking the silence, you've heard a lot about it, it's simple, but it's very effective. At the moment that something is being articulated, something is being aired out, like in a form like that, that there is an acknowledgement that this is something that cannot be ignored. Also, it moves the locus of responsibility from the privacy of recollection to the, uh, to the responsibility of society to be burdened by what's happening. Alert the system and the authority in um, any kind of a traumatic um, a event, today I'm talking about anti-Semitism as an example of it, uh, need to be the burden of society. We are members of society and even though individuals may be targeted, the burden lies within society and therefore any reparation can only occur in social context. Confront rather than avoid. I mentioned before that the avoidance does fuel anxiety and and therefore when I say confront that's not to mean you have to confront the perpetrator but confront the effect of the event. Sometimes confronting the perpetrator is the choice and the confrontation is not with the violence of violence but in in direct dialogue around what happens, rather than avoid either thinking about it or behaving in a certain way as a result of it. And of course, the media responses, We I show you too, there is quite a bit of an effort, pro-Israeli counter um, dialogue in the media, in writing, uh, to counter this kind of anti-Semitic rhetoric that we hear. Educate others. Combat ignorance. A lot of anti Semitism is initiated from ignorance. Having information is useful. Educate the perpetrator and the bystanders. Some uh, speakers did mention the bystanders. The bystanders is a particularly important agent because it can move from a passive stand of being a, somebody who stands by somebody else's being harmed to an active um, ally to the person who have been targeted. Educating the perpetrator is another useful way to really um, diffuse it. A, of course, in a fundamentalistic uh, my, uh, mindset, probably education is a little bit too late. However, there is an education of the media and education of those who are the majority or bystander. Some become collaborators, not that they perpetrate themselves, but they don't stop what is happening. So knowledge can help arrest the process. As I said, knowledge is helpful and a powerful tool. Learn a lot of things uh, that is helpful for a person to counter the effect and locate the fault in the perpetrator. Because at the moment that the fault is located at the victim, the, uh, it completely paralyzes the process of really trying to make any uh, response and any reaction. Advocate, okay, help others uh, understand and deal with the problem, publications, have conferences like that, um, empower the person, uh, himself, herself, get involved and the regaining of sense of control and taking action of becoming an advocate is a, a, a position of power and control. Get support. A, validating the experience is again something that they is, seem to be simple in nature but very hard to do. Quite often is being um, ignored. Uh, Quite often, in fact, the uh, attribution uh, of the event is uh, targeting the uh, victim again. Uh, So validation prevents the automatic negative attribution that will take place as a result of the uh, the anti-semitic event. Distance yourself from the perpetrator if education fails. Possible isolating the perpetrator. Sharing the burden, making it a social uh, urgency rather than a individual failure, and the power of numbers. Respond to an ally. All right, so what are the perpetrator dynamics that we can see that continue to facilitate and fuel anti Semitism? Not taking the perpetrator seriously. Quite often, people say, oh, those are just words, he it really doesn't know what he's saying, or they are just a group of teenagers, what they know. So there is a sense of minimizing really the effect and the potency of making of a perpetrator or the perpetrator. Reframing the behavior, as I mentioned, just empty words, when the words are written everywhere. Minimize the threat, this is crazy they have no power to make any change, any difference. That's minimizing the threat making the person or the group unready to deal with it. Be nice to the perpetrator with the hope they will like me. And maybe that would be somewhat provocative, but that's something that I think is quite common. And particularly in a group of liberal thinking, is that, oh, there is an identification with the and with the poor Palestinians, and uh, if we will only be nice to them, then they will understand that we are humans, that we actually are good Jews. We are not as great as they're depicting us, and therefore, you will affect the outcome of it. Um, that does not work, usually. Uh, blaming the victim, of course. It's easier to blame the victim, and the reason why? Because the perpetrator is holding the power, and usually is frightening and if you uh, to choose in what side to be, you want to be the side of the power and not the side of the powerless and that's human nature and that happens passively or actively and as I said ignoring the writing on the wall so it is very clear that, the, that there is a threat but it's being um, ignored. Okay, so what are the challenges as we are to encounter or uh, try to uh, combat anti-Semitism. Uh, the common one is fear of retribution. That if we will take a stand, we will be targeted as well. Quite often you'll talk to bystanders and they will say, yeah, I knew it was wrong and I wish I could help, but I can be targeted as well. Uh, and uh, that could be true for the group as well. A lack of support again, isolating and insulating the, uh, the um, a victim, it cuts them also off from support. The microaggression, oh, we are overreacting to it, also just, you know, jokes. I mean, just, uh, everybody uses that, so Jewish, it's just a joke, or jab, or whatever you, and of course, uh, microaggressions in words, they can accumulate and build up and become macroaggressions, and they take a form of action. Uh, the notion of cycle of violence, quite often the perpetrator is being um, uh, viewed as appropriately so, quite often the perpetrator is a victim as well. But what about the um, accountability? Yes, indeed, sometimes the perpetrators are uh, victims historically as well and that may even fuel their wish to be in power that the notion of accountability should stand outside of the vicious cycle of perpetration and violence. And I would like to propose also the identification with the aggressor, with the perpetrator is very common in um, fear for anti-Israeli rhetoric. Quite often even um, uh, Israelis are being viewed as, they are, like a former uh, presenters mentioned, is that, that they are as well are like the Nazis, they are the one in power, they are the one are the aggressors. And, um, and they often, uh, that will generate anti-Israeli um, rhetoric, as I said before. I do want to mention the Anti-Defamation League, uh, as a, a, I'm a member or a trainer in the Anti-Defamation League, um, just as in a good access for resources. And they also, the program of confronting anti Semitism has been very effective in the state of Connecticut, in particular, it really addressed it from a very early age. And I'm going to stop here with two
0: Okay, so now Nareet Schnabal is going to speak. Uh, the title of her presentation is called Mixed Emotional Needs. Mixed emotional needs of Israeli Jews as potential source of ambivalence in the response to the Iranian challenge. Noreen is a postdoctoral fellow here at Yale University in social psychology, and she's also an undergraduate advisor in psychology at the Open University in Israel. She taught at the Open University in Tel Aviv. She did her PhD in social psychology from Tel Aviv University as well as her master's in social psychology and her B.A. in psychology all at Tel Aviv University. It's so, an no honor that you're here. Thank you. Uh,
3: first of all, I'd like to thank uh, you for organizing this uh, conference, which was very interesting and uh, important. And as uh, Charles said, I will speak about the emotional needs of Israeli Jews, so I'm a little uh, off topic. Uh, uh, I won't talk about anti-Semitism. Uh, I'll begin by presenting the needs-based model, a uh, theoretical model that I developed together with uh, Ari Nada from Tel Aviv University. And um, I will present uh, experimental data uh, that examine the emotional needs of Israeli Jews in two different contexts of intergroup relations, the relations with the Germans and the relations with the Arabs in uh, Israel. And I will show, or the data will show, that Israeli Jews experience divergent psychological threats and consequently divergent emotional needs in these two contexts. And I'll discuss the implications of uh, this dual psychological experience uh, to the uh, response of Israeli Jews to the uh, conflict conflict in general and to uh, the conflict with Iran in particular. And I will finally suggest as an interesting uh, uh, direction for future research that some duality may exist in the stereotypical perception of Iranians as well and it might also affect the response to uh, Iran. Uh, first of all, I would like to begin by distinguishing between two uh, general uh, psychological... general oh, confused. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, between um, general uh, approaches to conflict and conflict resolution in social psychology The realist approach uh, suggests that disputes between persons and between individuals are grounded in conflicts over material interests, such as uh, money or land. Uh, So the idea in the realist uh, approach is that uh, conflicts are a competition over scarce uh, resources. The psychological needs approach, in contrast, suggests that conflict threaten the adversary's basic psychological needs, such as the need for a worthy identity or self-esteem, positive self-esteem, or justice or security, and as a result, uh, they experience emotional states or motivations, such as motivation, the motivation to get revenge, that uh, prolong and intensify the conflict. And uh, theories that grew out of the psychological needs approach often uh, criticized the realist approach for overlooking the importance of non-instrumental factors that contribute to the maintenance of conflict. However, having said that, it's important to mention that there is no realistic uh, conflict between these two approaches, uh, but rather they may be viewed as complementary. And therefore, when I uh, present the needs-based model, even though my focus will be on psychological processes and mechanisms, uh, this is not to deny that other uh, elements that are more, other uh, processes that are more, uh, or interests that are more uh, instrumental or materialistic in their nature do not operate as well, but are just not the focus of, of the, the model or, or the conference uh, The main kind of the needs-based model is that um, following the victimization epido- episode, both victims and perpetrators experience a threat over certain unique dimensions of their identities and these threats bring about different emotional needs. Other way to phrase it would be that uh, transgression deprives both victims and perpetrators of certain unique psychological resources and this this deprivation brings about uh, different motivational states. the model also suggests that victims feel inferior uh, regarding their honor, their self-esteem, their perceived control, their autonomy, their power, and therefore they experience an enhanced need for empowerment. Now, empowerment can be manifested in many different ways. For example, one way through which victims can be empowered is by taking revenge of their perpetrators. Uh, another way is by having the perpetrators acknowledge the injustice caused uh, to the victim, because such an uh, acknowledgement uh, serves as an admission of owing a moral debt to the victim, and this in uh, returns control to the uh, hands of the victims and empowers the victims. Uh, perpetrators, on the other hand, do not suffer from uh, loss of autonomy or power or, con- or control, but they do suffer from moral inferiority, and they may also feel, uh, although not always, guilt or uh, remorse, and they These uh, emotions actually stem from their anxiety over social uh, exclusion because the social sanction upon those who uh, deviate from the group's norms or uh, violate the moral standards of the the designated moral community to which they uh, wish to belong is their social rejection. Think, for example, about the um, embargo over South Africa. This is an an example of a social uh, rejection, social exclusion. And therefore, perpetrators are said to experience an enhanced need for acceptance. For uh, one, and again, acceptance can be manifested in several uh, ways. One uh, one way through which uh, it can be uh, they can uh, feel uh, reaccepted is by having the victims express empathy and understanding of the circumstances circumstances that uh, compel them to act. in an, Uh, unacceptable manner, and using the terms of Erwin Staub that you mentioned uh, earlier, this uh, re-humanized the perpetrators. The idea that uh, empowerment and acceptance are two basic human needs, uh, or fundamental emotional motivations or dimensions of identity that can be manifested in many different ways is reflected in many uh, theories, I just uh, mentioned uh, a few. Benis and Chevrolet talk about uh, dominance and relatedness as to uh, basic motivations of uh, group members, uh, resources theories, a theory that, uh, um, that categorizes different uh, uh, resources that are exchanged in social interaction, mention status and love. Uh, uh, other theories speak about respect and liking and it is easy to see how uh, uh, this concept corresponds to empowerment and acceptance in the needs-based uh, model, and there is also uh, the work of... Uh, of uh, there is also the model of stereotype content that uh, Peter mentioned uh, earlier, that ju- suggests that most stereotypes can be captured by two dimensions, uh, respecting or uh, uh, competence and warmth, that they reflect feelings of respect or disrespect on one hand and liking versus disliking on the other hand. And, um, and there is also work suggesting that uh, uh, these, these two dimensions are often negatively correlated. So some, So some groups like Jews, for example, are likely to be perceived as highly competent but uh, not very warm or low on the warmth dimension. So just to summarize the main argument of the needs-based model, The idea is that the threatened dimension of identity for victims is their sense of power and therefore they experience an enhanced need for empowerment and that the threatened dimension of identity for the perpetrators is their moral image and therefore they experience an enhanced need for acceptance. And the model also suggests that uh, satisfying these emotional uh, needs through a mutual interaction can improve intergroup relations, but this will not be the focus of my uh, talk today. Instead, I will move on to discuss uh, the findings of two experiments that uh, we conducted within our work on the needs-based model. And they examined the emotional needs of uh, Israeli Jews in two different contexts of intergroup relations, the relations with uh, Germans and the relations with uh, Arabs. And these experiments uh, inform us on the basic emotional needs experienced by Israeli Jews and may therefore throw light on the psychology of uh, their or our uh, response to other conflicts as well, including the conflict with uh, Iran. Uh, the first study focused on the relations between Jews and Germans. We had uh, Israeli Jews and Germans as participants, and each participant was exposed to two speeches allegedly held by an outgroup representative. So Jews were exposed to uh, messages conveyed by German representatives, and Germans were exposed to messages, uh, speeches held by a Jewish uh, representative, and the main message conveyed in the speech was either the empowerment or the acceptance of participants uh, in groups, and it's also important to mention that the uh, messages were identically phrased for both groups. So the acceptance speech conveyed the message that we should accept the Germans or the Jews. It is not easy for them to live with the past, and the empowerment message conveyed the idea uh, that we should cherish the contribution of the Jews or the Germans to humanity. Uh, It is their right to feel strong and proud in their country. Our dependent measures were a moral image and sense of power that were measured prior to the uh, exposure to the speeches. And uh, following the speeches, we measured the perceived posit- positivity of the messages. For example, we asked participants um, which message they preferred, and uh, positive outgroup orientation. For example, we asked them how does this message make you perceive the outgroup? And the results showed that in the co- context of the Second World War and the Holocaust. Germans suffered from a threat to their moral image. Their moral image was lower than that of uh, Jews. And Jews suffered from a threat to their sense of power. And uh, furthermore, Jews perceived the message of empowerment as more positive and had a more positive outlook orientation following it because this message satisfied their need for empowerment in this context. Uh, in contrast, Germans perceived the message of acceptance as more positive and they had a more positive outlook orientation following it because the message of acceptance satisfied their uh, need. The second study used exactly the same experimental paradigm, the same procedure, design, dependent measures, uh, but this time in a different context. In the context of uh, in the general context of the relations between Arabs and Jews in Israel, and specifically in the context of the Kfal uh, massacre. And in this massacre, 43 Arab uh, civilians were killed by the Israeli uh, border patrol, by, by the Israeli Jewish uh, border patrol. And so Jews were in the social uh, role of perpetrators, and Arabs were in the social role of victims. And again, the, uh, all, each participant was exposed to two types of messages. The message of acceptance conveyed the idea that we should accept our brothers, the Jews, or the Arabs. It is not easy for them to deal with their emotions following the massacre, whereas uh, the message of empowerment conveyed the idea that we should acknowledge the right of Jews or of the uh, Arabs to live in respect and to feel strong and proud in their homeland. And the results showed that in the context of the Qawqasem massacre, Jews suffered from a threat to their moral image. They had a lower moral image uh, than Arabs. And Arabs suffered from a, a lower sense of power than Jews. Um, furthermore, in this context, Jews perceived the message of acceptance as more positive and had a more positive orientation following it. And Arabs perceived the message of empowerment as more positive and had a more positive outlook orientation following it. Because the message of acceptance in this context satisfied the emotional needs of uh, Jews and the message of empowerment uh, satisfied the emotional needs of uh, Arabs. So, taken together, these studies uh, show that uh, it, um, Israeli Jews Experience, uh, different, experience different or conflicting, opposing uh, emotional needs in different contexts. In the context of their relations with Jews, they uh, suffer from a threat to their sense of power and experience an enhanced need for empowerment, and in the context of their relations with the Arabs, they suffer from a lower mo- uh, moral image or from a threat to their moral image and experience an enhanced need for acceptance. However, it can be claimed that this is not something uh, unique about Israeli Jews. It is possible that uh, uh, members of many different groups experience different emotional needs in different contexts. For example, it is possible that members of some European countries experience a threat to their moral image when discussing the colonialist period and a threat to their sense of power when discussing the Second World War. And nevertheless, uh, the two contexts that we used in our experiments, uh, you can almost say that they, def- they define the Israeli Jewish uh, identity, they are central to the Israeli Jewish uh, identity, and therefore they are likely to be particularly emotionally charged uh, among Israeli Jews compared to members of other groups. Uh, the, the context of the Holocaust, which, is, uh, which threatened the very right and ability of Jews to exist, is considered a major group trauma. And the context of the Israeli-Jewish conflict, uh, which was defined by uh, Batal as an intractable conflict, is prolonged, is violent, and it affects almost every aspect in the lives of the involved parties. And both conflicts, uh, as I said, almost define the Israeli-Jewish identity and are reflected in language, in images, in myths, in collective uh, memory, uh, so therefore, they are likely to be particularly pronounced, the, the experience of these opposing uh, uh, needs is likely to be particularly pronounced among uh, Israeli Jews. And further magnifying, uh, magnifying the experience of this emotion, m- emotional duality is the fact that while the context that uh, we used in our second experiment, the K'fal Kassem uh, massacre, is clear-cut in terms of the identity of victims and perpetrators. It is very clear that in uh, that context Arabs were the victims and the Jews were the perpetrators. The general context of the Jewish-Arab relations is not so clear-cut. Uh, on the contrary, what um, Nu and uh, others uh, suggested, it is characterized by a competitive victimhood, where both, uh, both Israelis and Palestinians Or Arabs often claim to be the real victims of the conflict. Um, And consequently, Israeli Jews experience divergent emotional needs even within the context of uh, Jewish Arab conflict. So, even uh, when relating to that context, they are likely to experience uh, divergent and different uh, emotional needs. And to illustrate this, oh, I see. Oh, okay. Just, Just I'll explain to She was brought yes. to the hospital more days than mat, with no chance of it.
4: Mm-hmm. When gone through the operations, at the moment. Her left leg is paralyzed with two of the nerves. Her pelvis was broken. It's not really safe, but Both broken. Her teeth were knocked out. walk that i
3: to I'm very limited I, to to bathroom, uh, okay. Okay, I didn't make to do things. okay. just uh, uh, started before I had a chance to say that this video will uh, illustrate the emotional needs of victims. Um, so, particularly her last sentence, she says, I, I don't think it's fair, rather than saying I feel uh, very miserable because, uh, because of uh, this injury. Um, and this, I think, uh, reflects the emotional need for empowerment because the need for justice or fairness, uh, as I explained before, justice is one form of social empowerment. Uh, so this, uh, this video illustrated the emotional needs of Jews when placed in the social role of uh, victims. And in uh, contrast, uh, this video illustrates the emotional needs of Jews when placed in the social role of perpetrators. Uh, so here there's an interview with uh, an Israeli soldier that works in a uh, checkpoint. Uh, I, I don't know how familiar you are with what the checkpoints are. The checkpoints are a physical barrier that were built following the Second Intifada. and the Israelis view them as uh, protecting those who wish to harm the country from entering it. And the Palestinians view them as violations of their basic human rights for transportation. Uh, so this soldier is view is um, the, the, her job is to check the, ch- check the documents of the Palestinians that uh, approach the uh, checkpoint and decide whether or not they can pass. And she discussed uh, the way in which she's viewed by the Palestinians. Uh. Okay if you manage to hear, but uh, again the last sentence that she said exemplifies the emotional needs of, of perpetrators. Uh, uh, she said that she wants to show that, that she's just a human being she's a human being uh, after all and this uh, reflects the emotional need for re-humanization using stealth uh, terms or, or reacceptance. And um, So in general I suggested that uh, Israeli Jews experience uh, divergent emotional needs, and the question is what are the consequences of this uh, emotional pendulum, this uh, uh, psychological duality to the uh, response of Israeli Jews to the conflict with uh, Iran. And so first of all, the experience of uh, this uh, duality raises the political uh, political dilemma or intensify the political dilemma of which threat is more crucial. So on one hand, we have the threat uh, that is illustrated here. You see these are uh, st- stamps, uh, uh, official stamps of the Islamic Republic of uh, Iran and they show guns, guns, or weapons pointing at uh, the map of Israel or at the... Jerusalem, and here the threat is very clear, the threat is to our sense of, pa- to a sense of power, to our sense of uh, autonomy, um, existence, uh, and control. So this is one type of threat, but at the same time, uh, you can see here the other representation of the other type of threat, and, and this uh, graffiti, one is from uh, Europe, one is from Australia, equalize the Star of David to uh, the swastika. So the threat to our moral images is very clear, that uh, they're gays, that Jews are Nazis. So, and, and as, uh, so as Israelis, we have to decide which threat is more crucial, which one should we address first? Should we first uh, take, or should we give higher priority to taking care of the problem with Iran and restoring our self- sense of power, or should we give higher priority to uh, to taking care of our moral image, the way we are perceived uh, in the world, in order to to, uh, to avoid social rejection or social uh, um, being uh, being under embargo or curfew or other forms of social uh, rejection, and uh, Different group members, different Israelis are likely to come up with different <coughs> answers to these uh, questions. So, for example, right-wing supporters might uh, experience the first type of threat as, as more uh, important or more crucial, and left-wing supporters are likely to experience the second type of threat as more crucial. And this makes it uh, very hard to uh, to find and to express a cohesive uh, group voice, to, to, to make a clear group voice because um, of this uh, duality. And the second uh, consequence is what might be um, referred to as the damned if you do, damned if you don't, a trap in Israel's foreign relations. Uh, each form of uh, response uh, to, uh, to, this, to, to this threat is likely to, to satisfy one need at the expense of the other. So if we uh, take care of the threat on our sense of power, we're likely to experience an intensified threat to our moral image. But on the other hand, if we uh, decide not to, to restrain from attacking uh, Iran and to and then to respond to the threat on our moral image, to avoid uh, threatening our moral image, then we are likely to experience uh, uh, the threat to our sense of power more intensively. So there is an inherent trap. Uh, regarding Israel's uh, response uh, another consequence uh, is based on the theory of ambivalence amplification and this theory suggests that uh, when we encounter an ambivalent situation a situation that evolves that uh, gives rise to different uh, needs or psychological elements uh, within us we uh, our final response will be per, will be uh, amplified because the energy from one uh, from one psychological element will be drawn to the other, uh, to the, to the other uh, element, and I think in Freudian terms it is called a reactive cathexis or reactive mm-hmm. displacement of cathexis. Right? but the, the idea for social psychologists is that uh, the response is amplified, so for example, uh, there are experiments showing that when we face a person that be- uh, belongs to a stigmatized group, for example a disabled person or a minority group member we feel on one hand uh, aversion and on the other hand sympathy. So, we have an ambivalent response and our final response, whether it's a positive or a negative, is particularly amplified compared to the same response, uh, of, compared to an equivalent response to a member of non-stigmatized uh, group. So, that's the idea of, the, of this theory. And uh, when um, applying it to the context of uh, Israeli response to Iran, or to intergroup conflicts in general, the opposing uh, the opposing uh, needs uh, are likely to result in a pattern uh, of two phases. First, we will experience a, a phase of vacillation of uh, uh, indecisiveness, and it will be followed by an amplified response. And it is possible uh, that that the response in the effort to cooperation show this pattern because most of the criticism, uh, I believe, on the on the Israeli. On the Israeli uh, respo- act on Israeli actions in this operation, was not upon the right to, uh, count, to to respond to the attacks of the Hamas, but rather on the magnitude of, of this uh, response. So it is possible that it is uh, uh, that it is um, influenced by this psychological uh, mechanism. And uh, finally, as a future direction for uh, research. I would like to suggest uh, to take the same dimensions that I just used to uh, analyze the needs of Israeli Israeli Jews, the emotional needs or or dimensions of identity of Israeli Jews. Um, So we can use the same dimensions to uh, examine the stereotypical perceptions of Iranians by uh, Israelis. And as I mentioned before, the dimensions of power and morality or empowerment and acceptance highly correspond to um, the start of content model that uh, Peter uh, uh, presented uh, earlier. And this model suggests that when people meet others, they want to know what the other's goal will be be vis-a-vis the self or in-group and how effectively the other will pursue these goals. That is, perceivers want to know the other's intent, positive or negative, and capability. These characteristics co- correspond to perceptions of warmth and competence respectively. And I also mentioned the work of German uh, uh, and colleagues that show that these dimensions are often negatively correlated. So, for example, the stereotypical perceptions of German Germans will be as uh, very competent but not very warm or, or not... Uh, very uh, moral. However, uh, I would like to suggest that Iranians may be stereotypically perceived by Israeli Jews as low on both dimensions. Uh, so regarding the warmth dimensions, uh, it's pretty straightforward. The negative intentions of Iran towards Israel were explicitly expressed. So um, this one is, is pretty clear. And uh, based on the uh, work of uh, Edward Said and others, I would also like to suggest that they they might be perceived as uh, low on the competence uh, dimension because uh, non-Western peoples and cultures in general, and Muslims in particular, are stereotypically perceived as inferior to the West. They're perceived as as passive, as um, uh, primitive, as uh, culturally culturally, uh, underdeveloped, culturally, technologically, economically underdeveloped. So uh, in general, they, they might be perceived as low on the competence they mentioned, dimension, and this might lead, might lead to questioning their ability to pursue uh, the, their negative uh, goals, the, the, to, to, to doubting their ability to pursue their negative goals. So on one hand, yes, they have negative intentions, but on the other hand, because they might be low on the competence they mentioned, maybe we shouldn't take them to, so seriously too seriously. So this is uh, another form of ambivalence or duality in the Israeli response to uh, Iran. So to summarize uh, my argument, I suggested that Israeli Jews who continually face threats to both their collective sense of power and their moral image have opposing emotional needs resulting in experiencing a psychological duality. And uh, there might be some duality in the stereotypical perceptions of uh, Iran by Israeli Jews, and this results in an ambival- in ambivalence that affects the response of Israeli Jews to the conflict with uh, Iran.
0: I I think there's a point of information. I don't think the Israelis perceive Iran as passive and not a serious threat, um, for sure. And I was wondering, wondering, we can't do this, in your study, you can't do this with the Jewish-Jewish relations, but I was wondering, in terms of the uh, Jewish-Arab relations, you can sort of switch around the scenario to measure differences. So you look at a massacre of Palestinians by, by Israelis. Why don't you look at a massacre of Israelis by Palestinians and measure the response? Is there an inherent flaw in your study you can measure the reactions of both groups to similar situations? Uh,
3: no, I believe that I didn't do it yet, but I believe that if I do the equivalent uh, the equivalent study, then I'll get the Arabs when confronted with the facts about them being as perpetrators, they will experience an enhancement for acceptance, for understanding, for empathy, uh, it's not something inherent about uh, Jews. I, I, yes, I, I would uh, predict that if uh, Palestinians are, are uh, read, uh, read about a uh, terror attacks or, or other offenses conducted by Palestinians, in that context they will feel uh, an instant need for acceptance and not for abandonment. This is one thing. The other thing regarding the uh, Iranian. Uh, Again, I'm not saying that that's the only thing that might uh, paralyze uh, Israelis because they think, oh, we shouldn't take them seriously, but this is one factor that operates there. For example, when I checked, when I worked on on the presentation in the paper, I saw that many times the atomic bomb is described as primitive. So so they're saying, yes, they're getting an atomic bomb, a nuclear bomb, but it's primitive, it's it's, uh, it's like the the bombs of, of the Russians in the 60s or something like that. So I think that this association uh, does a, a, or it might cause underestimation of uh, their ability to pursue their goal. They are not taken seriously
2: enough. I I would actually, from the perspective that I presented, I think this is a good example where there is a minimization of the threat coming in relationship to what is the perpetrator, the threat to this. And so uh, the victims just to minimize or to and to be afraid to adjust
4: words rather than to actual, threat. And so that's a Okay, I have a question to Maurice and question to Adal. Uh, so to Hadal uh, the question like we um, clinical psychology or psychiatry usually treat the victim and like with a great empathy. Um, and I don't know like if there's a way to treat the perpetrator uh, what strategies uh, do we have in psychiatry or psychology, um, and, and like what models? Uh, is it trauma models? Is it models for borderline other things? So this is the question. If we have anything that we can apply to this context. And question to Nuit, uh, we talked today, in my talk about goals, and I would like to play together, like to put your dimensions on oh, oh, needs. Uh, like to look at it as like some kind of activated goals, and, and, and we talk about goals like goals are activated, and then once they are uh, when they are satisfied, they are reduced. So in your model, it like it looks as if like the, the two needs are some kind of um, static. And my question is, that to what extent you think that it's dynamic? Because we know that the social contexts are dynamic, and so not in terms of it could be the dynamics could be um, could be uh, resulted by you know the the response of the other side, or even in, by the person himself. Like once he you know if someone uh, experienced the need for empowerment, and then he gets a feedback, so maybe the, this need is reduced, and then another needs. Uh, is increased. So, I mean, if you, if you, I mean, the question is like, if you can see, or if you think that there is a connection between the models of goals and models of um, emotional needs. And so, Do you want me to answer first? I don't what know, like, you order? decide if you <laughs> have, like, anything to yeah. say. On it.
2: Well, I, I think that they, I said before that it's a, uh, in the context of uh, what kind of perpetrator can what useful in really paralyzing the, the effective response to say that, uh, most perpetrators are victims themselves, which I think it's true. Um, However, in the context of your question, I'd like to answer it uh, from the perspective that uh, if you are treating a perpetrator who is also a victim, the the treatment, the uh, trauma model does help because quite often the the attempt to get to a position of power is stemming from the helplessness that inherent in the victim place. Or, alternatively, um, you have actually uh, even more specifically trauma reenactment where there is an identification with the perpetrator uh, where the victim chooses to take the position of power, become the perpetrator, him or herself, and then uh, be in a position that they can have some sense of control. So deciphering it from the, from the context of understanding how the trauma affects the person would be useful in working with uh, perpetrators. In my work, I worked both with uh, combat-related trauma in the VA setting with Vietnam veterans, that many of them uh, were in, it was actually complex, a complex presentation where their childhood suffered a lot of childhood abuse, been in the war and suffered war related trauma, came back home and became victims of the homecoming, and then became uh, perpetrators to their wives and children when they became perpetrators themselves. So the complexity of where they move from victim to perpetrator is enormous. And so the, the so-called simplistic, but yet kind of a very core, respectful need to go to the perspective of the trauma and how the victim can uh, start empowering uh, himself and therefore not need to take a violent means of power or even mindless means of power. I did not work exclusively with perpetrators, and not randomly, but I don't have maybe specific experience just working with this population as a whole. I think that
3: it's related to the second consequence that I mentioned, that there is a a dynamic of satisfying one need and then experiencing uh, the other. And I'll give two examples, one personal and one uh, maybe from Stephen Hopfell's earlier uh, presentation. So for example, following the attacks by Hamas or by Hezbollah during the Second World War, I I would feel, no, we have to respond to this. We can't shut up. And then after we respond, I think, oh, but there is so much uh, 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 civilians that are, are being heard, how could, could we do it, but it was not something that was not uh, predictable because that's what happens in, in war. But, and I feel that the, this is exactly the, the reason, the, the problem is that you satisfy one need and then you experience uh, the other. And the thing that Stevens uh, example earlier uh, on about the Americans' response to uh, 9-11 is similar. So first of all, uh, everybody wanted to attack even before it was clear who who is responsible for for the for, for the, uh, for the uh, terror attack but later now you can see the response that that, that part of it is, is is related to why do we interfere with the uh, I mean other countries or uh, considerations that are more related to the moral image uh, but again this is not something you can predict before you just reflects I think that the the different ways that is given to each need uh, in different phases.
5: I have a question for you, which is that it seems to me that when you perpetrate an atrocity of some sort, you do it in a socio-political context, and uh, that um, the existence of some needs that you find in a study done in Israel or in a Western democracy with Western values may be very different than the, uh, the needs that you would find in the, in the Muslim world or in some non-Western society which may not share the same values, etc. First of all, the, um, one person's perpetration of an atrocity may not seem like perpetrating to somebody else, and it may be that Israelis are very sensitive to the um, bad things that they're forced to do. It may be that Americans would be the same way, it may, but it may not be. Now, you have rather small effect sizes in, in, in your studies based on stimulation of, of you know, a priming that, that occurs before it. Now, it seems to me that you really can't say much of anything at all about what's going on psychologically outside of the context in which you do the research. And I was wondering if what you would say about that.
3: I have a, cu- a couple of uh, things to say. First of all, uh, I didn't get into it because I didn't want it to be too much uh, in detail. But uh, our idea is, uh, sometimes I use the, the term uh, morality, but our idea is not about more sense of morality, inner sense of morality, but rather about moral image, uh, because I think that the threat to perpetrator is the, the threat of social rejection. So it's not so much whether they feel that it is right or wrong, or, but rather, whether they feel that what they did is perceived by others as right or wrong. So, so this is one distinction that by I. By others in their
5: culture, or by others. Okay, that that,
3: that, that relates to, to a different uh, to a different question. who, who, who is the the. the so so m- my answer usually uh, is significant ad- others, but then the, the question is what significant others uh, might mean, and 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 that's 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 a. a Another question, and uh, and also you mentioned the effect size are very small and, and it's true. Uh, I think that beyond the situational uh, placement of, of being in one social role or another, there are, because I did everything in the Western culture, I related to it as a personality variables that maybe some people uh, in general, have a general tendency to experience the need for empowerment as stronger, and others may feel the need for acceptance as stronger. But of course, in the same sense, there might be cultural differences, and I didn't didn't check them.
1: I mean, An example of that might be, say, honor killings, if you were to look at, uh, you know, killings of uh, of daughters or or, uh, sisters who have been felt to disgrace the family. I mean, they're the social Context would be almost would be everything, even in terms of whether you experienced yourself as the perpetrator or the victim. If, so, so, you know, in Arab cultures where a woman may get killed for dishonoring the family in some way, even construing that, even each party's construction of who is the perpetrator and who is the victim. I mean, yes, it's clear that one person is killing somebody else. But, but who has been the victim of the atrocity and and what the issues of empowerment or, or acceptance are would be a totally different context than you would understand it in a Western context.
3: Yeah, although specifically in this context it's, it's a little complicated because one of the, the the arguments is that the family doesn't really see the daughter as the, as the The perpetrator, but if they kill the person that violated her.
1: But or be to even say revenge, you know, avenging. If
3: they take revenge of of the guy, then uh, it will start a whole uh, cycle of of counter revenge, and and so the easiest thing would be just to kill uh, the woman. So that's. that's But they they do
6: blame her as having somehow caused it off, and um, I think there is right Or you can put it in the context of what I was talking about, mm-hmm. that you know, if a lot of these scapegoat ideologies lead to violence, it's, you know, we have been, you know, the Nazi self-image of you know, Mein Kampf, it's we've been too benevolent, the Germans have been too benevolent, the Jews have us in the back, they took advantage of us, we're the victims. And I think that a lot of these perpetration acts come out of feeling that you're the victim, and now now looking back on it, maybe some people, you know, <laughs> change their perspective, right? But but, you know, in the thick of it, if you feel that you've been victimized and you've you know, you're doing what you have to do as self defense and you believe in that justification, then 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 maybe that's different. Sure, right. sure, that,
3: that, that's related to, to, uh, right. yeah, it to is. my previous answer. Yeah. That maybe if the Nazis has won, then we would get different results or wouldn't be able to conduct this study. But, but the, uh, the idea is that that's why I'm saying, I don't think that the Nazis or the Germans felt that they are doing something immorally. But right now, at the time, now, of, yes, being they, they realize the the outside, moral image, right? that their image, there is a threat over their moral image. So whether or not they think it's, it's they feel guilt. Yes, that's why at the beginning I also said remorse and guilt are feelings that we, we don't get so much. And it's more the impairment to the moral image that raises the, the fear of social rejection. That's,
6: right, and then that's that, that point that you said, whether you, put the other that you care about? Because there may be others that you don't care about what they think. Exactly. Um, and, and whether guilt needs to be involved here I think, the question I think you so.
3: uh, We began with this but we saw that this don't get guilt so, so we, mm-hmm. that, that's why we realized that the important thing is moral image and I agree that, it, that, that because the, the, the threat is to a sense of belongingness or acceptance then it's also important who uh, comprises the, the relevant Designated more community—that's the the term by Cavucci, sociologists. So so of course uh, you can get different responses to that, and they
4: will affect you. More questions to Adam or to Noe. One question is like, what tools do we have? It's like a follow-up question. Uh, What tools do we have to treat people that they don't want to get therapy? I mean, like when someone comes to the clinic and say, "Okay, I'm suffering, I'm traumatized," so it's easy. But what if we put you in Iran? What would you do there? I mean I say a hypothetical question what, I mean how can we use tools of, psych, of, of you know, psychology to if at all to, to intervene uh, in population where they don't think that something is wrong and the other question is like uh, I think this um, this panel was really interesting because it's like combines uh, social psychology and clinical psychology and then the question is like where I mean like it looks that like the world is getting crazy and so the question is like where, where is the boundary between stereotype and psychopathology. I mean, because on the one hand, we can, say, we can say, okay, it's a prejudice. On the other hand, when ca- it comes to genocidal threat, uh, it's, it's insane. And so, how, what, what, what answers psychology have to make the distinction, if at all, uh, between the two? I'm sorry, but, you know, are just a question. So. Um,
2: I think that the Clearly if somebody comes to seek treatment, you already have an entry, and, uh, but that does not guarantee that you're going to be able to deliver what is it that they are seeking. Uh, I think that what they can be particularly useful, and that may be also transformed to um, in, for a different purpose rather than just a clinical intervention, maybe social intervention, is to have a, a true understanding as to what are the and a human responses to it. We may be living in different contexts, but there is some sense of humanity that does bind us all uh, to our species. I mean, we're not just defined by our cultures and set of beliefs and, and set of goals and so forth. And there is a human a, a perspective that needs to be capitalized on, in my perspective, and that's actually the kind of model that we use in our trauma center is to try to de the response to trauma or to, uh, uh, to any kind of uh, aggression uh, because it is the human condition that really is a characteristic of the response and therefore of the uh, intervention. So in the clinical setting you can put it in a paradigm of treatment intervention In in a social setting you can put it in a paradigm of uh, inter, uh, of interpersonal connections and how uh, the responsibility to one another is so and so. So, I think that uh, um, just understanding how this power differential affects the response uh, probably is somewhat universal. Um, we may express it in different ways, but it's very universal. I think people do understand what it is to be oppressed, no matter what the context is. It does call for a certain kind of response. And, and I think if you can bring it out, that the, the, the beginning. Because any healing, you know, in the therapy session or in social setting, it needs to be in the context of society, it cannot be in isolation. So, in fact, you don't need to have the pathology perspective. Right. I mean, I'm not completely, I mean, just as a, as a
7: perspective. I guess I have a less clinical uh, question uh, relating to uh, as a comment and a question in regard to uh, what Israelis are thinking about Iran. Uh, I guess the, the comment, just, I just want to broaden the uh, <coughs> Israelis' look at Iran. We talked earlier really more about the, the possibility of the nuclear threat, but actually, the, th- the threat of of Iran supplying weapons, which could even be nuclear, and, uh, uh, to Israel's neighbors, are really part of the equation as well. Right? Uh, I guess the question I had with that as a background, uh, how do you feel about uh, this last uh, election from the point of view of knowing what, what is the psychology of uh, Israelis. It was interesting, the rightist parties, you know, not most of the, the votes, but the two major parties were very close, only one vote between them. So, is that suggesting uh, kind of the split of, of attitudes in regard to Iran? Um, I, I don't know if, if, if uh, Iran was the major, uh, uh, I don't know. <laughs>
3: But uh, I, I, what I feel as a duality, uh, or, or something that is uh, is changing in, in uh, uh, Israeli politics, is that on one hand uh, the the population becomes more and more uh, supporting right wing in the way they identify themselves, but on the other hand, if you look at the ideologies of, of some of the described, as Stephen Hopkins said earlier, there are 70 around 78 percent. Um, people's right, seventy-eight or seventy-eight percent uh, percentage of the people support the two-state solution. So, um, so, 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 so there is a gap between the, the practical uh, solutions that people adopt that are more what if it was uh, uh, fifty years ago what was considered left-wing and their self-identification as uh, right-wing. Um, I don't know if that answers that's either. just
7: a shortcoming of polling you know uh, because the majority voted for Hamas in the elections that they had that's, that led to the whole crisis in the last couple of years uh,
3: right but, but on the other hand the, the, it might be that the, the, just the, the, I don't know how involved you are but uh, the recent uh, elections in Israel were more about social justice it's not so much I, I, it was not so much about the, the conflict with the Arabs. So uh, in a similar way, I think that the election of Hamas was uh, highly related to internal issues of, of, uh, within the Palestinian, because the Palestinian Authority was very corrupted. And I think part of the, part of the support of the Hamas is related to, to, to internal Palestinian issues. So it's not just about us.
7: Don't you think that they read
1: the Hamas charter that we had elaborated for it? <laughs>
3: yes, they probably. I'm 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 I'm, uh, I'm not trying to 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 justify, but I'm just saying that, that part of it is is internal issues. It's it, it was not just about it was a lot of it was about the, the rejection of the corruption in the Palestinian authorities because they got a lot of money and didn't give the people themselves. So there was a lot of frustration uh, about it, uh, and also uh, I don't know, Paul. Uh, it also depends on how how much we. Support
7: the leading false for us. I'll
0: give you two cents to the first question. I think the fact that Netanyahu were, uh, reached out to Barack, even though the Labour Party suffered uh, losses in the election, sends a very clear signal to Tehran that uh, this is the type of government that needs to be in place to deal with the Iranian threat. Mm-hmm. So he didn't reach out to other parties that were probably more appropriate for an effective coalition. So that's, I okay. <laughs> actually didn't have a question about this panel, but as we're, as we're closing up, and I'm sort of going back to the beginning theme. Okay, so you know what? So I'm going to stop there, and I think we're going to start have a round table discussion. Oh. And I thought maybe we'll just take a five minute break. There's still drinks in the back. And if there's no other questions, and then we can have a round table discussion. In seven or five minutes. So if somebody can have will... okay. Thank you, Larry. Thank you. Very much.
7: Thank you very much. Well, issues of anti-semitism,
0: we focus on psychology, social yeah, psychologists, me I think it was helpful. I remember I used to have a supervisor and he used to tell me that I uh, wasn't focused enough on my research and I'd make little marks all over the world and the idea was to drill a hole deep in the oil and then the oil would come up over the earth. So I think in a way we focused on a very specific discipline of anti-semitism. I think it was uh, crucial. So, so thank you. you. There's oil in Israel now. Apparently, there is. Just just read that they have enough natural gas now to to be (laughs) self-sufficient. But so, (laughs) so um, anybody like to comment on the day and some of the issues that were raised and ideas for research, thoughts, concerns?
8: This is more emotive than rational, <laughs> so forgive me, but you know, thinking through the, through, through the whole day and again being, being in Columbia and struggling with this idea of, of the Columbia faculty, some of which are, you know, I think uh, pro-Israel but silent, um, some of the faculty are very anti-Israel, both Jews and non-Jews and things like that, and it occurs to me that in terms of some of the, some of the silence, the feeling I had through a bunch of the speeches were that where we are as, as as Jews in terms of this movement of civil rights and increasing tolerance is that we're like where gays were in the 1950s. You know, it's kind of like half of us, some of us are out of the closet, and the other half feel like no, it's really bad to be a Jew. <laughs> you know, there's a sense of that, and I was trying to find an analogy of where we are in terms of civil rights movement. And that's the one. I don't know how. I'm, Anyone can relate to this or it that's just sounds crazy, really but that's nice where it was. to
6: throw out there after you through that. Yeah.
8: Uh, okay. In terms of the struggle of, you know what I mean, in terms of struggle of, and I like this thing about, you know, I report incidents this, that the ADL was doing with Hadar, you know, report these incidents, you know, stand up for these things and do that. Uh, but it did sound like something like, do we have to learn this now? It's so funny that we have to learn this now, you know, and yet we seem to have to relearn those principles, you know, of coming out of this closet and, I, I, and it also reminds me another emotive thing is that I've never done it but I had, for about a year now I've had this fantasy of showing up to work wearing a yellow star which says Zionist on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's, it's sort of the atmosphere, I guess, I guess it's just that atmosphere that I that I, I, grew up at, I grew up in Columbia and it's an institution that I really loved and now it's a place in which I actually feel like I'm the outsider, I'm the closeted one. It's a very unusual thing.
9: This reminds me of, do you
3: know the book, maybe you're interested in, by John Stratton, coming out Jewish? He writes as an Australian academic. He wrote that, I think, in 98. He writes about all those issues, being in uh, academia and uh, surrounded by liberals.
8: Mm-hmm. Nate, title again. Coming up Jewish. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Also, so, it goes
0: with your. Similar Goldsmith was Vic Seidler was a he became a professor at Goldsmiths College in social yeah. theory. His speech, his inaugural lecture, which was a very it's a very common thing at Goldsmiths College, was he came out as a Jew, and his lecture it was very moving and very troubling at the same time. We, he's, he's, sure. Vic Seidler, Victor Seidler is a serious social theorist.
3: Uh, I think for me, one of the solutions would be to have more uh, data on it. I, I always feel better to speak about things w- when I have data. So, for example, I often feel that violations of human rights by Israel get ma- receive much more attention by the media and, and much more common, uh, uh, much more responses like demonstration than violations of human rights uh, in other places. But if I had data uh, showing that, just the uh, uh, quantitative data, I I would feel, because it's something, for example, I wanted to write in the chapter, but uh, because I wanted to say, we experience the emotional needs, uh, uh, we have a particularly emotionally charged uh, response to this need, but but also the world responds in a way that is very emotionally charged to everything uh, we do, like the mirror of it, but I didn't have any data on it, so I I don't know, maybe the reason I'm just not aware of it, but for me, one of the things to expose, of the ways to expose these biases is by just having research
8: on it. So Charles, could you guys serve sort of as a, as a resource of that, so people could sort of send in questions and say, hey, here's what, what I need, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> people could sort of send in things to you, because you have access to so many scholars. Here's what I need to understand in order to make this argument. I need this, you know, kind of a virtual discourse <laughs> yeah, discussion. There's just two, uh, well,
0: there's two things. I, I think there's a need for maybe a, a research, um, that would be a very good... People are beginning to look at anti-Semitism on campus, but also maybe at anti-Semitism among the Academy, among scholars. And this feeling that you articulated, I'm sure you're not in isolation, but it would be interesting for maybe a social psychologist to do actually a, a proper high-caliber you know, study on, on American, the American academic scene in terms of these issues. And that, we, we don't have the resources to support it, but we can support it intellectually. But the the idea of Yista uh, will be to become a documentation center and a resource that um, parliamentarians and scholars can access. Uh, this is the next project we're working on. So This is, will be, I hope, within eighteen months, we'll have this project. Happen, hopefully. Basically,
4: my experience of the day was uh, totally different. Um, out of all the talks, it was uh, very interesting. But I mean, like to see that it's not only a problem of Jews. I mean, like we, I mean, we briefly talked about like why why we, we, we no longer talk about anti-Semitism now, but like after the Holocaust, it was very popular, and I remember, now maybe it's like we talk about it again. But I mean, like, so this was only brief talk, but then, I mean, you all talk about relational prejudice, and you talk that we talked about, like, it's like it's more a human uh, problem, and when I talk about the Hamas. So I don't think that it's only a problem of We see the same dynamics in different contexts, and we now need to apply it uh, in a specific context, but I don't feel some kind of responsibility the, um, to say like oh, this, oh we are Jews how, how difficult it is to be a Jew because now I have all these responsibility. I think it's like something uh, um, it's um, it's an international problem and we can st- we can learn from the experience in, in Holocaust Rwanda to, uh, and to and and I think also the strategy it's a better way to um, you know to, to be united with other um, ways, with other problems with other forms of prejudice because in that way we gain more power as opposed to say, well, we are Jews, we are victims, how difficult it is to be Jew, and so on. And I agree that we need to have data. (laughs) But but Jews have been at the
8: forefront of the civil rights movement for the last 30 years. I mean, that's where, you know I mean, that's where I feel the sense of betrayal, right? I mean, Jews have been at the forefront of of the civil rights movement. I myself, you know, was at at civil rights demonstrations. I marched against the Klan in New Jersey, for God's sakes. You know, uh, the Klan is in New Jersey. In In the late 1960s, I was on, the marches that were dangerous to my health and I marched on that. So it's actually been the last hundred years, but you know, that only adds to your point.
5: I still have the feeling that there is a, um, a lack of information in the general public about just what is going on in the Muslim and Arab world about Jews. And I feel that um, that when scholars get together they get drawn towards issues that strike me as fairly obscure from the point of view of the political problem that that we're facing and that the solutions that psychologists are likely to come up with they all are well maybe after we get more data and the theory gets developed and a hundred years later maybe we'll have an intervention that might be likely to work whereas i feel the proper role right now for scholars maybe not for psychologists but for scholars of anti-semitism is to document just what's going on in the um, Middle East with regard to Jews and to get the message out there. And the way I see social psychology or the contribution of psychology and social psychology is in how to get the message out there. In other words, how not to find out about... And I'm, I'm, I'm not denigrating any of the theoretical work on anti-Semitism. I think there's, there is merit to it. I read it. I've been consuming it producing small amounts of it for years, but I think that the the political problem can't wait for the um, for the research problem, and that particularly if we look at the reward structures of the various disciplines, they don't reward the type of research that I'm talking about. They reward the type of research which ends up um, building theoretical models, um, and this is not just in um, social psychology or in psychology, but they they don't um, um, in, in history, they reward focusing on a very, very small part of the problem from years ago. In the, um, in the humanities, in, um, in English, I'm not exactly sure what it is they're doing. But, um, I think that's my ignorance. But in any case, they never quite get back to the real problem at hand. And I come away from these conferences often with the feeling that if you can't convince the anti-Semitism researchers that there's a problem in a task, then, we, then the problem is bigger than the thought. I mean, I guess that's sort of an outside perspective here, but that's my, my feeling. So. I just want
9: to say the scholar of the humanities, that uh, they do actually work and try okay. to figure out why things happen, just not from statistics, but from other tools.
5: I'm willing to believe it. I just think it takes an awful lot of investment to
7: catch up with thinking okay. Picking <coughs> up on that point, how do you perceive the role of researchers and uh, and GISA, other groups of this type, relating to uh, interacting with political leadership so that changes do occur, rather than doing research without moving it up to into action?
0: So. Uh, you know, I think Ari Bernard Levy said it very well when he said that uh, the role of an intellectual or a scholar is to shine light for his darkness. And I hope, uh, given the social and economic and political and cultural reality that we're living in at the moment, and the, the crisis and the emergency when it comes to issues of anti-Semitism and genocidal anti-Semitism in particular, vis-a-vis uh, the social movement of radical Islam, not to be confused with Islam, I think it has to be very powerful, Distinction, because actually I think Muslims are the biggest victims of this uh, extraordinarily reactionary genocidal social movement, and um, the role I think we're playing is I think in a way to ring alarm bells, to to tell the academy to wake up and to do serious high caliber research into this phenomenon, and to also meet with policymakers to to present high-caliber research to policymakers, to leaders of NGOs, and to have an impact. Uh, and I think this is the responsibility and the moral obligation of scholars. And uh, ethically speaking, if you have the time and resources to sit back and to read and to think, and you know the problem, and you're in the ivory tower, it's, it's worse than being ignorant. It's morally reprehensible. And I think that we as scholars have to engage students, faculty, and the public not as ideologues and not as politicians, but as high caliber
7: scholars. I
9: think that we also cannot just focus on students and educating students. Prejudice starts at age 2, by 3, four, that it's set in a lot of ways. And so we have to try to educate parents or parents-to-be in terms of awareness. And whether it's just Jewish parents as a focus, it has to be much earlier than junior high school, although it's very effective. But you go home, and the prejudices are there at home. Right. So yeah, it, it's actually it's been a challenge for the anti the
2: Because we do now a lot of anti-bullying workshops, mm-hmm. and, and the bullying started in yeah. So the, um, we, you know, we usually target the high schoolers so at that point. It's completely consolidated and the and so forth. So it's a challenge how to translate those kind of programs mm-hmm. that usually uh, are quite charged, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, very early on. And that's true, of course, for any kind
9: of version But you can also show anti-Semitism as the ultimate bullying. What it, lead, what it can lead to you know you start out by pushing somebody in and you punch somebody in, and then you call them all kinds of names and that's just the basic essence that's where it starts and so it be nice to have some kind of a connection you know, an <laughs> indirect connection
0: just, I know you to say something just very quickly I think you it was really to, to the scholars who are here. Uh, our policy is to be open and inclusive. So, if anybody has any, uh, any ideas for a project and can benefit from being sort of within the umbrella of I and mean, people are very welcome. And the second thing I want to mention, and I'll send emails to the people who presented, I hope that we can create a, an edited volume of the papers that were presented here. And I think we have good relations with Yale University Press and to perhaps create a, a edited volume. So, I'll be in contact with the scholars and I hope you'll participate in that because I think the papers are really good. And Thought-provoking,
5: awesome. You know, I just wanted to re- react to that, the last idea, which is that I think that the educational programs which are geared towards children living in the United States are useful, and I see a very clear function for them, and I've seen kids who've encountered anti-Semitism and they need to know how to deal with it, but I've, I think also I've seen that we have mandated Holocaust education, in, um, and that I, I see students who've gone through it and don't even know they've been through it. And those programs have all sorts of issues. One thing is that they don't usually get to the people who need it the most. They're not given in the right countries, they're not given the, the, the right the right people don't pay attention to them. And even when they're done, they're they're often done by people who, who aren't that well trained in what they're doing, they teach the wrong lessons. So I don't have really high hopes for stopping the tide of global anti-Semitism through programs that addressed towards children, young, middle, or older in the, in the US. I'd like to see um, college students and other people become active in getting at the real problem, which is the socialization for intense hatred, which is taking place in many um, Middle Eastern countries. And the, though we don't have any access to that. There's nothing, not so They are
2: very involved in the in counter-education.
5: Yeah. I mean, they do terrific,
2: we should learn that's from them. Yes, that's I true. mean, we call it propaganda. Yes. They, they serve their purpose very, Persistently and very effectively, I think that maybe this is something to have a better understanding of how what we view as a propaganda with a negative connotation is as effective. In, in they very systematic. It's not just a, you know some kind of massive, Bible, a, a brainwashing. It is a very organized way to teach their children to hate Jews, and we need to find a way to educate. Everybody, not mm-hmm. how
4: to counter those kind of forces because they, they are successful, you're yeah. not. It's a simple yeah, thing I really, I really follow what uh, Dan said. I think that this could be a contribution not only to anti sentiment, but to psychology mm-hmm. in general because I looked at problems for prejudice and, and like we have uh, like we talk about education and then I really like all this stuff but the, the world has I mean changed and like it's now it's globalization we no longer and we have the internet and the, the impact of. Of propaganda is, is tremendous, I and mean, we basically in psychology we don't have that much tools for intervention uh, using the media, and so I think that this kind of project it's 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 a real challenge, and we have the notion of non-conscious goals, uh, that it's like experimental notion, but this could be translated to intervention, and and I really believe that it's efficient, and, 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 and it's not done. I mean the 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 Muslims they do it fantastically. And we have a lot to learn, and we think that by like, reasoning, education, this, but it's not. It doesn't work like that. It's like automaticity, and we need to understand that, and just to use the same strategy, exactly. and um, because like education is very slow, and we need to do yeah. something more immediate and
1: like more, you know. It was, a, it was like a, um, Israel Jews had a positive reputation, I guess, after the Six Day War, and then maybe since then it's just kind of been people that have kind of just let it.